0: Well, good morning, everyone. Let me adjust the technology here. Sorry, my pack fell off my belt. All right, well, as Pastor Andrew said, I'm Pastor Josh, and I'm I'm 33 years old. But this Christmas, I felt old. I felt old for the first time, really. And one of the reasons I felt old was that I discovered that The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, came out 15 years ago at Christmas. Um, I couldn't believe it. I I remember going to the theater like three times to see The Return of the King. It was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. And uh, I have this vivid memory as well of, of watching or trying to watch the trailer for the previous movie in The Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Two Towers, in my high school computer room because we only had computers in a computer room at that time. And and we couldn't. Our small-town internet would only get it up to about 30 seconds in, and then it would stall out, and you know, you'd back up 5 or 10 seconds and try to watch it, and it just wouldn't get past 30 seconds. It just could not load up a three-minute video of even moderate quality. And I remember sitting there thinking in 2001 with some of my friends, are we ever going to get to a place where, where we can watch television over the internet, and we're all like, nah, that's never going to happen, especially not for live things like sports and stuff, it's just too fast, like how are we, and then not even a decade later, we were streaming the Vancouver Olympics in HD, and now you can watch Netflix wherever you want on your phone that you've got in your pocket, it's, it's really is amazing how much changed in the time between even say 2000 and 2010. I was talking to someone not that long ago who's about my age and we concluded that the world we grew up in, like in the 90s, is so different from the world that kids are growing up in now. It might as well have been the 1950s, right? Like, the phone was attached to the wall. And and you had to talk on it, and however much cord you had was how far you could go. And smartphones have just fundamentally changed how we do almost everything, right? How we make and share memories, how we communicate with one another, how we access information. And none of us would have seen that coming, really, back in the late 1990s or even early 2000s. And and who knows where things will be in another decade or two from now, right? Like maybe technology is just going to keep on increasing and our dependence on it is going to keep increasing and the the line between it and us is going to go on decreasing. Or maybe there will be some huge grid down disaster and we'll all go back to living in a pre-industrial agrarian society. Like who knows? We just can't predict what's going to happen, let alone control what's going to happen. And with that in mind, let's rewind about 1900 years, and we'll meet John the Apostle, who is also in a world where he doesn't know what's going to happen next, and that's where he meets Jesus. So if you'd like to stand, as we typically do, for our our sermon text reading, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, am alive forevermore, and have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand on the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. You may have a seat. We're going to spend the next weeks looking at the seven churches that John mentions in this passage, and that section of the text covers the next two chapters. Revelation 2 and 3. But before we dive into there, we're going to spend the majority of our time today looking at this text, Revelation chapter 1, which sets up, well, the next two chapters, the letters to the churches and the rest of the book as a whole. It's important that we kind of get some of these things straight if we're going to understand what follows. I've called the series, Don't Stop Believing. Of course, there's a sense, right, I get some chuckles, because sermon titles are supposed to be a little bit witty and provocative and, and so forth. And, and, of course, most of us, when we hear that and we think of the, the song by Journey of that same name, we hear the piano line starting up in our heads and we'd sing along if it, was, if it was being played. But it's not just completely irrelevant to our series. That song is about people who find themselves in a strange and unfamiliar place, who are alienated and lonely, and, and what are they going to do about where they find themselves in a world that's, that's not really friendly to them. And of course, like so much in pop culture, some of the places they go to do something about that sense of loneliness or misplaced identity are not the healthiest, hookup culture and, and substances and so forth. But the sense of aloneness and isolation is relevant to God's people and the need to stick with what we know, to keep believing, living as we do in a sort of Exile. And the title does parallel this frequent theme throughout the book of Revelation. John talks a lot about the need for patient and faithful endurance over and over again, right? The need to be faithful, the need to keep believing in Jesus, even when the world around you tells you that that's silly or even wrong or dangerous in a world where there are hostilities and hardships. So what's with the imagery? If we can just have the the series title slide back up there. What's going on here? Well, we see a view out the the broken stained glass window of an abandoned church overlooking a city skyline. It's St. Louis, Missouri. You can tell by the little arch thing there. This represents what I take to be a great warning, but also a great point of comfort in this book. There's a clear warning throughout these letters to these churches that if they are not faithful to Jesus... They will not last long. In fact, the Lord even warns them that if they are not faithful, he is going to come and remove their church and their witness, and they will go the way like this. And I think this is just such a powerful picture of this interaction between the church and the society in which it finds itself, and who's, who's going to win out in this struggle that's going on. And in this case, it would seem the church did not win. But in that, there's, there's a picture of hope too, right? Because we know that in any city, there are churches that, that died out for various reasons, perhaps because they were unfaithful. But there are also other churches that the Lord has raised up to carry on his work. And it's the same with the churches we're going to be reading about. Some of them were not faithful. And yet the church as a whole has outlasted the Roman Empire other empires, other dictators and systems that have arisen throughout the ages. The church as a whole still remains and still continues on because the Lord sustains it and he promised that he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. And that's the end of Revelation, right? There's violence and upheaval and judgment that happens. But at the end of it all, when the smoke all clears and the dust settles, quite, quite literally, what's left? The kingdom of our Lord is victorious. There are plenty of warnings in these letters. So, throughout this series, let's be careful to avoid thinking about the church or churches or the local church and some sort of abstraction as something that exists out there in the so called real world. This is the local church. When we talk about the local church, this is the concrete expression of it for us. God's people meeting here in this specific place, specific time and location with specific people. The local church is not an abstraction. So let's remember that these warnings are for us as well. Karenport Community Church, this campus, whatever, we're not immune from the need to heed these. Nor are we immune from the possibility of, of judgment For not being found faithful to our Lord. So let's just take a little bit of background as we think about this this book. The traditional understanding was that Revelation was written by the Apostle John. He wrote it sometime in the late 90s AD, at the close of the first century. This would put the book toward the end of the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. This isn't exactly a slam dunk. There are other possible theories as to when it was written. Some people favor an earlier date during the reign of Nero, and some of that depends on how you interpret certain things in the book. The the seven kings that are actually eight kings, and some of them have come and some of them are here, as well as the mark of the beast. Some people see that as maybe pointing to Nero I know it maybe feels like a cop-out and a thing preachers say, well, we don't have time to dive into those details in our service today, but but we don't have time to dig into those details because that would be a rabbit trail. The point is, in either one of these cases, in these scenarios, both of these emperors, in contrast to even other Roman emperors, desired and were worshipped as gods during their lifetimes. Roman emperors could be deified or be proclaimed as such after their death but to request that while still alive was that was maybe even a step too far for Roman emperors but nevertheless they did this and they were worshipped as gods and they were even called Lord and God it's not hard to see how that would present a direct challenge to people who believe that there was one God and that Jesus Christ was Lord and God and Savior not Caesar now In this Roman world, Jews had a special kind of provision due to the antiquity of their religion. They were not obligated to worship the emperor. Initially, it seems that Christians were also given this provision because they were kind of just thought of as a sect or a denomination within the Jewish religion. But as time went on and the decades went by, even the Jewish people themselves started to separate themselves from the Christians as the Christians developed their own system of worship that was increasingly separate from the temple and from synagogues. When the Jews started to draw a division, and then the Christians too, that there's, there's something different here, especially as the Christian movement became more and more Gentile. And so especially in these cities of Asia Minor, Christians could frequently find themselves in a very tight place. And it seems that John himself fell victim to some of this persecution. As the book opens, we find him exiled to the island of Patmos. It was a small island just off the the coast in the Aegean Sea that served the Roman authorities as sort of a convenient place to send political prisoners to. In a more modern expression, John had been sent to Siberia, basically. He'd been sent where they didn't have to worry about him anymore and just send him away and he won't cause us any more trouble. That's where we find him. Now, this book, I want to be clear on one thing as we start. The title of this book is Revelation, not Revelations, plural. Why is, it, it, it's a pet peeve, but I think it's also important. There's a significant difference. If you call it revelations, that implies that the book is primarily a bunch of information, a bunch of separate revelations about things that are going to happen or something. Whereas if we call it revelation, as the title actually suggests, that's different. It's it's a revelation about a singular thing. And as the title of the book says, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fairness, it does say, in order to show his servants the things that are going to take place. But let's not confuse the result or the purpose of this book with its central focus. Its central focus is Jesus Christ. The Lamb who was slain and the King who is coming. That's what this book focuses on from beginning to end. We get titles for who Jesus is. We get descriptions of who Jesus is. We get the, the picture of the heavenly worship around the throne where Jesus is exalted. Do you see how that changes things? If we focus too much on this book as a, a sort of road map to the future, it can make us anxious and worried as we try to figure out how all this is going to take place and are we going to be caught up in this or are we going to be spared? If we see it centrally focused on Jesus, that should put some of those anxieties to rest and give us more sure and certain confidence. The book as a whole is a letter addressed to the seven churches, or, or at least networks of churches, in seven, seven different cities in Asia Minor. Now, we have a map here. The, the region of Asia Minor is roughly equivalent to the modern nation state of Turkey, right here. And Patmos is somewhere up in a little, little cluster of islands up here. You see Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, Philadelphia is there, Laodicea. John is exiled here and starts with Ephesus, and this is the order they go in. Sort of the order that a messenger would have taken to deliver this this message to the different churches. There were other cities in this part of the world that had churches. Some of them have letters written to them in the New Testament. It may be that John had some special connection to these seven churches. Perhaps he was in some sense an overseer over the seven But John was also very fond of symbolism, and so it seems that in any case, he would have just picked seven, because seven is the perfect number that symbolizes completeness, and it seems he chose that intentionally to signify that this letter is to these seven specific churches, but it's also to all churches, all churches in all times and all places. Now, there are so many titles and and descriptions of Jesus crammed into this chapter that we won't get to every single one of them. This could be a sermon series in and of itself. But it's important to get to about as many as we can, I think. Let's start with verses 4 and 5. Grace to you and peace from him who was or who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Wow. Imagine being an oppressed Weary Christian in one of these seven churches and you receive this letter and that's how it opens. Or, or don't imagine, just imagine being yourself in a world where Christianity is increasingly looked down upon and the things we believe are not just kind of weird but considered even dangerous and unacceptable. Cultural understandings of truth and morality may come and go, but the Lord God remains the same and remains faithful In this text, it seems that he who was and who is and who is to come refers to God the Father. But as this book continues along, as even this chapter, but especially the whole book, we see a lot of the titles that are initially applied to God the Father also get applied to Jesus Christ. One of the major purposes of the book of Revelation is to show that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. And this parallels the passage in Hebrews that says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Furthermore, rulers may arise that persecute God's people and set them up some, themselves up as ultimate authorities. But right off the start, this book reminds its readers that not Caesar, not any other power, none of those things ultimately rule. Jesus Christ is the ruler over the rulers over the kings of the earth. Doesn't that start to even now put some wind back into your sails? The world is not run by the media elite, by special interest groups, by big business, or anyone else. At least not ultimately. Ultimately, it is run by Jesus, and finally, it will be run by Jesus. Revelation strongly emphasizes Jesus' kingship and authority, But it never leaves behind his saving sacrifice either. Jesus is the ultimate ruler, but he is a ruler who can identify with his people because he suffered. But more than that, he suffered sacrificially and redemptively. Next point here, his blood, says, his blood it says, washed us and freed us from our sins and reconciled us to God. Now do you see what we have here? Jesus is the the ruler over the kings of the earth and he's the one whose blood has washed us and freed us from our sins. We've got these two things, these two truths that we can hold together. Not even seven verses in, we're already assured that Jesus is powerful to take care of whatever needs we have. Don't you see it? If we are faced with evil outside of us and hostile powers that would destroy us, Jesus is the first and the last and the ruler of the kings of the earth. If we're faced by evil within us, our own sin that would destroy us from within, Jesus is the lamb who was slain, whose blood will save us and wash us from our sins and make us clean. What else is there? If we're safe from those two things, we're safe from the most serious things that could ever come against us. There's nothing really greater as far as danger is concerned than those. I don't mean to to belittle anything else you might be facing, relationship struggles, financial difficulties, employment uncertainties, family pressures, illness, bereavement, anything. But if we can trust that Jesus frees us from our sins and that he rules ultimately, those things are not quite so all-powerful as we might be tempted to think, and as we sometimes feel. A big point of what's going on here is that Jesus puts reality back into a proper perspective. Once we pass this greeting portion of the letter, and there's a lot there that is, goes beyond just, hi, how are you? John begins to relate the vision he experienced. It begins, fittingly enough, if this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, with a vision Of the risen and exalted Christ. And this is awe inspiring stuff. But I want to focus on one specific aspect the living Lord walking in the midst of his lampstands. We're told right near the end that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches to whom this entire book is written and sent. In this series, we'll we'll cover the specific word to each church in chapters two and three. This is such a beautiful image, though. The image of a lampstand is not a new one in Scripture. In the Old Testament, Israel's temple had a lampstand, and the priests were to keep that light in, in the temple, and their lampstand, burning at all times. Now, while we Christians prepared to celebrate Christmas, Jewish people celebrated Hanukkah. Back in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Uh, If you know some of that history, the Jewish people were oppressed and overrun by the Greek empire and the temple was shut down and defiled and eventually they rebelled and they were able to take back their temple and rededicate it, but they found that they only had enough oil, uh, the sacred oil that was for the lampstands for one day. But miraculously, so the story goes, the oil lasted for eight days until they could purify new oil to properly rededicate the temple and, and get the lamps burning again. And to this day, Jewish people still light their menorahs and commemorate God's faithfulness to his people. We Christians also celebrate at this time of year, just past, with candles too. I don't think I'm alone in looking forward to christmas eve service where everyone lights their little candles and we sing silent night and so far we've not burned the facility down in our part of the world at least christmas comes at the darkest time of the year and it's fitting that we celebrate it by lighting candles even tiny little ones we celebrate the coming of the light of the world into the darkness by lighting candles And even if they aren't all that bright, they still defy and and dispel the darkness. It's like John wrote in his gospel. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And then in a further act of symbolism, at least it's tradition at our Christmas Eve services, we light the, the Christ candle at the front of our gathering, and then we light candles off of that candle, and we pass the light from person to person, and share that light and spread it to one another. And that's why... I don't know, I, I know that some, I've seen people use glow sticks or cell phone lights and so on, but there's, there's something very meaningful about actually taking fire and passing it around. There's a real transfer of actual energy and matter happening there that's a profound, profound symbol. So it's fitting, I think, that a church should be compared to a lampstand. We are to shine forth the light of Christ and his gospel to the world that's shrouded in darkness. And we don't do it alone. That's the beautiful thing. Jesus walks in the midst of his lampstands, his churches. In this book, there are, as I mentioned, seven mentioned. Seven actual cities with churches, or networks possibly, of churches that existed in history. What Jesus has to say to them concerns specific things that they were going through in their local communities. Specific issues they were facing. But the fact that there are seven, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's important in a symbolic way. What these churches faced is what all churches have faced throughout the centuries. They also they stand in for all the congregations in all the lands, in all times, and all sorts of different styles of worship, different denominations, and the rest. Jesus walks among them all, and he walks among us. You've probably heard the saying, what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You've heard that, right? H- have you heard this one, though? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, except for bears. Bears will kill you. I think Jesus has a slightly different take on this saying. I think he might say, what does kill you makes you stronger. Or at least that's m- how it must have appeared to John. The, 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 the man, Jesus... The, the carpenter rabbi from Nazareth, a common man who went around teaching and preaching and was crucified, and now he shows up and he's like blindingly brilliant, is declared to be the Alpha and the Omega and the rulers of the kings of the earth. It's, it's so awesome that it's terrifying, and John's only response is, is to fall down at his feet as though dead. And this wasn't, or, or at least it shouldn't have been totally unfamiliar, because perhaps you remember the story when the Lord took Peter and James and John up onto a mountain and gave them just a glimpse of this this same sort of glory. And he turned white and shining and, and was terrifying. And, and their response was the same. They fell down on their faces because the glory was overwhelming. Not only was their response the same in both cases, though Jesus' response was the same. In both instances, he told them, Fear not. You don't need to be afraid. It's me. The message, don't be afraid, is most immediately connected to that usual response in Scripture when when fallen humanity meets the sacred and the divine. Angelic messengers and visions from the Lord normally provoke an initial response of intense fear. And although that fear is reverent and proper, Jesus says, no need to be afraid. It's me. It's Jesus. But in this context, I think it's fair to go beyond that. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your circumstances, whatever they are. Immediately after saying, don't be afraid, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. You see what he's saying here? What's the worst thing that can happen to any of us? Death? Untimely death? Tragic and, and painful death? Jesus says, well, it happened to me. Didn't kill me, at least not permanently. I'm alive forevermore. Jesus died, but now he's alive. He's alive forevermore. He has the keys of death and of hell. By submitting to death, he conquered it and became Lord over it. So do you see why, why we don't need to be afraid? Whatever might happen to us, hardships, persecution, suffering, death, loss, anything, it isn't the last word. It says here that Jesus has the last word because he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. None of those other things that we might fear, that we might worry about, that might threaten us, none of those things have the last word. This Scripture tells us that Jesus has the last word. Friends, if we're going to really get what we ought to out of these letters, we need, to, we need to lock in our focus on Jesus. We're really going to need to work hard to recognize that Jesus wasn't just walking among his churches 1,900 years ago in a place called Asia Minor and and among a few churches whose names we struggle to remember. Yeah, what's, what's those weird names, right? It's not just a long time ago, though. That's now. Jesus walks among his churches and among his people now, by his Holy Spirit. We need to recognize that. We need to work hard to remember that and to live as though it is actually true. We need to be open and humble to receiving what he might have for us even if what he might have for us is sometimes correction or even rebuke. We need to be open and eager for receiving his direction and his power for ministry. If we're going to apply these letters and actually live them out in our lives and in the life of our congregation and the life of this community, we need to be far more focused on Jesus and what he has for us, than anything else. Ministries and programs and strategies and policies and important though those things might be. We need to really zone in, make time and make space for Jesus to speak to us before we start speaking and saying what we think we need to do and how we need to live. We need to be open and we need to be open to seeking the real and living Jesus who walks among us. That's not just a figure of speech. We need to actually believe and live as though that is true. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, an impersonal God, well and good, a subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still, a formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, in man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. Are we prepared for it to come to that? To God actually finding us, getting a hold of us, maybe coming in and cleaning house in one way or another, shaking things up, changing things, correcting, rebuking, having his way in our lives and in our community? Are we prepared for that? What if 2019 was not the year that we found God, but that he found us? Are we prepared for the kind of shake-up that that might bring to our lives and to our church? Are we prepared for it to come to that? So fear not, but be prepared. Because he's alive. He is speaking. And as we're going to hear so frequently throughout these letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are Lord of history, past, present, and future. We are thankful that you are the Lamb who was slain to redeem us, that your blood washes us from our sins, makes us... Right with our Heavenly Father. We are thankful that you are the ruler of the kings of the earth, of history, and of all. And Lord, we confess that if those two things are true, the biggest problems we could possibly face are taken care of. And if that's the case, then we can trust you for all things, whatever we might face in this life. We pray that those truths would breathe some fresh wind into our sails breathe some fresh passion and eagerness into our lives we pray most of all that we would know that you walk among us we are told in this passage that you walk in the midst of your churches your lampstands we pray that we would recognize that truth that that's still true for us today that you are walking in the midst of your churches your church even right now, at this very moment. We confess that that's true. We confess that we have not always lived as though it were true, though. So by your strength and power, which only you can provide, Lord, may you enable us to live in light of that great truth, to live as though we really believe it, to fix our eyes on you and what you would have for us, not our own intelligence and our own abilities, and that we would be open to what you have for us, even if that should be correction or rebuke. We want to look to you, we want to follow you with what you have for us into this new year ahead. Help us to lay aside other distractions, even lay aside things that might be good things, so that we have open hands to receive the best things that can only come from you. We pray that above all else, we would be found faithful we would be found believing in our Lord. At the present time, should you return for us, whenever. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, the Lamb who was slain and the King who is coming, Jesus Christ. Amen.